Hello and welcome back to the Great Woman Artist Podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today we will be speaking with Modern Art Oxford Chief Curator Emma Ridgway on the great Ruth Asawa. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewellery, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners, they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. Each week, their founder, Rosh Matani, will be giving us an insight into Alighieri, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Great Women Artist listeners. It's Rosh from Alighieri Jewelry. I wanted to let you know before word gets out tomorrow that Alighieri will be opening up the doors of its pop-up Alighieri Old Town, an old-school Italian piazza in the heart of central London from the 5th to the 9th of May. We'll have lots to show you, from a new bridal store to a nail bar and a chain bar. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter to, to be the first to book. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that today on the Great Women Artists podcast, we are speaking to the acclaimed curator, Emma Ridgway. Currently the Chief Curator at Modern Art Oxford, where she has led the artistic programme of exhibitions and learning since 2015, and staged some of the best exhibitions I've ever seen, such as of artists Lubaina Hamid, Rose Finn Selsey, Hannah Reigan, Penny Walcock, and Claudette Johnson, to name but a few. Emma is also very excitingly the curator for the British Pavilion at next year's Venice Biennale, which will feature one of the UK's foremost artists, the brilliant Sonia Boyce. Previously a curator at the Barbican Centre, where she was instrumental in initiating education projects that drew on the Bauhaus and Black Mountain College, Emma has also held curatorial posts at the Royal Society of Arts, Serpentine Gallery and Corge International Arts Association in New Delhi. She holds degrees in fine art, art history and curating contemporary art from Goldsmiths and the RCA in London and is a Claw Cultural Leadership Fellow. But... The reason why we are so lucky to be speaking with Emma today is because she is currently working on what will be a groundbreaking exhibition on the highly innovative and influential artist Ruth Asawa, set to be at Modern Art Oxford next spring and summer in 2022. Titled Citizens of the Universe, the exhibition will be Asawa's first ever museum exhibition in Europe and will feature her signature hanging looped wire sculptures and celebrate her holistic integration of art, education and community engagement that synthesises with one of my favourite quotes by the artists. Art will make people better, more highly skilled in thinking and improving whatever business one goes into or whatever occupation it makes a person broader. Emma Ridgway, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? 
Thank you, Katie. Yes, I'm good. Thank you. Well, thank you so much and so many congratulations. I should add that this exhibition was set to be at Modern Art Oxford this year and has had to be postponed. But to get people excited, it's really an honour to speak with you and discuss this fantastic artist. I mean, Ruth Asawa has been an artist I discovered a few years back at Hauser & Worth LA show of abstract sculpture. And then I was lucky enough to see the show at Zwerner and then a few at the Whitney. And every time I see one of her works, I am just somewhat mesmerised. They are these beautiful interlocking wire sculptures and from every angle you look at they take on a different dimension there is something so bodily so tangible so fragile yet so strong with Asawa's work and then when a light shines onto them they create these beautiful shadows they're quite sort of chameleonic so I just love to start off by asking you how do you feel when you are confronted with an artwork by Asawa? Well, thanks so much, Katie, for the great introduction. And actually, our exhibition was due to open in 2020, but that's another story we can touch on a bit later. Ruth Sauer's artwork is completely incredible. So she's far better known in America. She isn't known in Europe. And when you're really looking at her work, it's her incredible exploration of our intimate closeness with nature. So when yeah. I first saw her works, I literally kind of gasp, you know, as in, <gasps> yeah. as in they actually take your breath away because yes. there is something so compelling about them. There was something she was in tune with intuitively was apparent because when you first look at them, you kind of assume they are from nature, that they actually are directly from nature or perhaps they're made in some way that's not by human hand. Yes. And so that slight cognitive dissonance that comes up when looking at them and then they really draw you in. You kind of get attuned to that slightly zen-like mindful contemplation that it must have taken to make them. And you're kind of drawn and invited into that. And so I think that's what was so astonishing on first seeing them. And as you mentioned with the shadows... One of the things that's incredible about these works is some can be really far larger than one's own body, certainly yeah. far larger than Ruth's Asawa's <laughs> body. She's quite petite. Oh. They really take up a lot of space or really tiny. So they just nestle like a little jewel in your hand. And what's incredible really as to what we're looking at is we're actually looking at space that's not occupied by anything we can see. Yeah. The training she had and that looking at negative space and appreciating lines when they are there, then the spaces between lines, that's what we're drawn into enjoying as well. It's so interesting you say that because one of the most favourite times I've ever seen her work was at the Whitney. And it was in that space in the Whitney where it overlooks the Hudson. And you can sort of get it from each angle. So you can look at it against a white wall or you can look at it with the Hudson and with, I guess, New Jersey looking out. And just the kind of different ways of different shapes that it highlights. I mean, what's so beautiful about the works, it almost has this sense of, like you say, zenness, but there's a quietness to it. They sometimes kind of disappear from your space and actually accentuate the world around them more than they do themselves. That's so beautiful. And I guess that really ties in with Ruth Asawa's kind of whole approach to art and life as well. It's about accentuating the other. Absolutely. It's very much within life. And exactly, that was a beautiful positioning of that work. So that was a, a very, very large, tall work suspended yes. in an alcove of a pretty narrow, but very tall window in the Whitney. And the, the works were droplet globes that looped and the contours of them are very curvy and biomorphic forms, is very yes. strong. 
And because of their size, they seem quite loud. But because of the delicacy and the fineness of the wire, they, of course, allow everything to happen through them and within them as well. And that gives you a very interesting bodily relationship with the work. They also are very engaging and interesting when you're physically near them. And it was seeing the works in the States that made me so keen to show them in the UK, but also that kind of, I don't know, sense of urgency, very slow yes. urgency yes, yes, yes. of wanting people to have that encounter. Totally. I mean, you mentioned just then you saw the work at an institution in the US. I mean, do you remember which museum it was or which work it was? I'd seen Ruth Sauer's work in yeah. a number of institutions, but that was actually after I'd heard of her by quite a few years. So I first heard of Ruth Sauer in about 2006 because I was researching Black Mountain College at that time. And there was a text by Mary Emma Harris, who's the director of Black Mountain College Project. And it was only years later that I saw Ruth's work in person. And so that encounter and that kind of difference was really striking. So I wanted to curate an exhibition of hers because I was looking again at the female artists who'd been at Black Mountain College, sort of amazing artists who had come out of that incredible, progressive, liberal arts education because in Oxford it's a city of learning and art and education to my mind are absolutely inextricable so looking at the education as a whole person is how you make any professional and some would go into arts and others go in other directions felt an important thing to do and with Ruth in particular as I started with more and more that community engagement and activism just spoke so wonderfully to what it could be to be an artist, and what it could be to have education all through your practice. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, 2006, Ruth Asawa was still alive at this point. I'm guessing that maybe you didn't meet her. <laughs> so it was 2017 when I identified Ruth to do a show with, when I first thought Ruth Asawa would be perfect. I had assumed that she was likely to still be alive, and I work with contemporary artists. Yeah. So that was my uh, expectation and hope. But of course, found very soon that actually I just missed meeting the amazing Ruth Sauer as she had died in 2013. Yeah. But her family and others and actually the more and more still as we research the show, people are pleased with doing it. More and more stories come out and it's a real delight to be able to represent her yeah. life as, as best we can. Um, I didn't get to meet her, but you sometimes feel you get to know someone so intimately through doing deep dives or all their personal letters and talking oh, to wow. family members and all these different things. So, yeah. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Well, I can imagine also with her work, it's so kind of made with the hands as well. You can really kind of feel that touch as well. Her presence is so strong when you're there. But I'd love to go back to the beginning of Ruth Asawa's life. So she was born in 1926 in Norwalk in California as the fourth of seven children. Her parents were farmers who had emigrated to California from Japan. Can you tell us about her early childhood and family? Yeah, I mean, it's a very America kind of story in terms of people her father came over with the hopes of having a, a better life than he was set up to have in Japan so Ruth was one of seven children and living in a rural California in a pretty poor area the prejudice against Japanese people in America is difficult to over exaggerate 
yeah. the phrases, the explicit overt racism was very extreme. And that is why they were living the best they could as rural farmers. And very much a middle child, fourth of seven children. And Ruth is very energetic and she sounded really great fun. Uh, what I've read. <laughs> what, and, as a child? Uh, yeah, yeah, really great fun. And so they would be working really hard on the farm. You know, they were a poor rural family, as in they were a low socioeconomic group. It was immigrant parents. So they had an amazing life at home and they worked incredibly hard. And that capacity to work hard, they'd be working on the farm. Ruth would be off here doing the wire for beans and oh tying my goodness, up beans. that's so interesting. Some stories, one of her daughters mentioned, apparently she would go off quite far in the field sometimes because she would get a bit frustrated and annoyed with people. So it was a good way to get a bit of you know time on her own. And their Japanese cultural heritage was something that was in their lives. And from the age of eight, uh, she started Japanese calligraphy classes. Wow. The church they went to was a Quaker church. So, of course, Quaker, incredible history to that yes. as a as a humanist, progressive form of Christianity. And the Quakers were, as Ruth said, the only tolerant Christians, and they defended them. And when the demonstrable racism against the Japanese really began after the hit of Pearl Harbor, it was the Quakers who were vocal about that not being right, not other Christian groups. So wow. that relationship with Quakerism continues through Ruth's life in interesting ways. Oh my goodness. So she, at eight, was doing her calligraphy uh, classes, which is, again, you have this aspect of making a line and then appreciating the space yes. between the lines. But, you know, she's an energetic eight-year-old. She loved drawing. And when she was 10, she won an art prize. But that, <gasps> that idea that art was something that she was good at started really early. And when reflecting back on a number of different memories from her childhood and as a young person, actually, she mentioned that as a teenager, when doing the bean wire, yeah. she would unwind the wire that would be on some of the labels for the vegetables, and she would retwist them into things like you know, bracelets or little rings or jewelry <sighs> necklace. So that's one point in her childhood that she references as perhaps having a relationship to the wire sculptures later on. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. But I love this quote of hers. I, I'm not sure when she said this in her life, but she said, sculpture is just like farming. If you keep at it, you get quite a lot done. And I just thought it's so interesting to hear about everything that's just sort of synthesising, whether it is the calligraphy, whether it is the wire. And actually those sculptures that we see in her sort of mid-career are quite calligraphic as well. It's like the sort of sinuousness of the line. But I mean, you mentioned earlier about this horrific racism. I mean, in 1941, the attack of Pearl Harbor meant that 120,000 Americans of Japanese descent were detained by the US government. What did this mean for Asawa and her family and how did this affect them? So when I first was reading about Ruth's internment, I just kept welling up. I just couldn't get over it. It is pretty shocking stuff. So that's why Ruth. Uh, just shortly after her 16th birthday, was, with her whole family, put into a concentration camp. They're called internment camps in America. Her dad had actually already been taken from the family. It's now reflected on in the US as one of the worst atrocities against people within the United States. So these are citizens of America 
who have been all pulled together uh, simply through fact that they are Japanese or they have heritage as Japanese. Pearl Harbor was the reason given, but actually there was plans in place already for these camps to be modelled on, as was being done in Europe. So to go back to our Ruth, we've got a teenage girl who is now thrown in with her family, a huge amount of people she doesn't know, into horse racing tracks, smells of horses. It was cold and most incredible, Ruth is resilient. She's someone who is kind of creative and interesting and sparky and so there was all sorts of other things that came out of this for her that we'll touch on in a moment so she's in the the Santa Anita racetrack in California and amazingly the community of Japanese people as in not an intentional community a thrown together community there were people from all walks of life Ruth had been growing in a, a quite small rural community And people organised in the most incredible ways. So they set up allotments. They set up teaching for the students. There was a wonderful cartooning zine in in the archives at Stanford that was made to show the kids how to navigate these camps, how to do the showers, little adventures or strange things that would happen. So there was as best as could possibly be made in the most adverse of circumstances was made. And there was a bit of a shortage of trained teaching staff there. And so some of the people who are professional artists stepped up into teaching the students as well. So for Ruth, she for the first time met professional artists. And this is California. Yeah. And so the artists were professional Disney animators. Wow. Who had worked on, you know, Fantasia, Dumbo. So this is really incredible. I mean, this isn't stuff kids wouldn't have heard of. And one artist in particular, Tom Okamoto, one of the exhibits we're showing is a letter from him years later in that very Disney-style handwriting saying how proud he is of her and how great she did at this moment when she's in the camp. So she learned to draw and she got a real passion for it then. And you can see in the zine that was kind of put together, Ruth did drawing of herself and the different students all characterised with like their different qualities and characteristics like their shy one or the singer and she did herself as an artist again so we again have that kind of self-identifying confidently as an artist and there was the making of camouflage nets there that is thought to perhaps had influence as well on the tying and the, the making of works so amidst all the horror and the dehumanizing experience people come together into community and they make things happen you know and it was for that it was extraordinary and she had amazing teachers when she was there some of them so Tom Akamoto a teacher called Miss Jameson who took them out uh, when they moved more inland to a second camp believe it or not Mabel Rose Jameson she in a letter again written much later that we're including describes Ruth as talented and quiet yet playful so when I say she'd be really good fun to hang out with I don't mean like the most like the charismatic noisy one I mean like you know really great fun games creative up for stuff trying stuff 
and you really that energy that's so there it's absolutely just palpable it's palpable through the letters it's you see it through her work I love that and she had an amazing teacher called Louise Beasley now Louise Beasley is a younger woman who's an English teacher she gets them permission to go off a site when they're in Arkansas some of the girls a very small number of them to go and do painting outside. They've not been outside for ages and they're being taught to paint. So really different things. Now, the conversation around citizenship was happening all the time, loudly in America, right? It was being used against people. It was being used to try and galvanize people. And Louise Beasley reading a text that she wrote for the students as well, it was very much take control of yourself. You know, you are a citizen. Don't be bitter take control of yourself so you can be part of this big country, do your bit. And Ruth later mentions as well that Ms. Beasley kept saying future, future. She didn't like that. She kept saying, don't be bitter, don't be angry, because of course you're angry. This is everything you don't want at any point in your life. And so that she didn't understand at the time, but she found it very helpful to continue think about the future, think about the future. And that really helped Ruth. And that's a lesson for today, right? I mean, there is a big problem for young people and everyone at the moment when there isn't a conception of the future, which is one that's hopeful, that you can take control of your bit, your world, you within it. These narratives around the apocalyptic nature of climate change and these different, more disaster, darker narratives at the moment, whilst we are in a relatively calm period, to some extent in other ways for some countries that's very difficult to cope with for younger people and even in the darkest of times that for Ruth and her peers was helpful I mean it's it's something that definitely isn't taught in British schools enough but I think you know it's it's one of the biggest atrocities of the 20th centuries but I mean it's just incredible (laughs) no I'm crying but uh, you know it's just incredible to hear that someone can actually see such positive and you're right especially at a time like now I mean there was this amazing quote that she said it was you know that she had this firm belief that art can be life-changing and a positive force for social good and it's like the power of art what it can do and what it can do in times of the most the darkest days Katie that's exactly it and she (laughs) learned she said she learned that's what she learned in the camp she said art saved us you know oh yeah you get art teachers and people sharing the absorption you need to make art. It's something that I don't know if you've trained in art or you've made art, but when when you make art, there's many moments where it takes a while to get into the space mentally to, to be so absorbed. It's a very particular type of thing. It's very absorbing. This is different from social form yeah. of making, yeah, which craftivism, all that wonderful stuff that also is massively important different forms of cohesion and also that learning to master skills you know learning to make your mark within the world these things are they happen in small ways in making art that's why it's so important to do in schools in all schools state schools yeah and and that's why it's so important and also that it's it's you doing it you know with others but kind of your way comes through a lot in in visual art and art making as well which is important sense of your place in the world. And so that's why it's so wonderful, as you say, when Ruth, she says it saved us. She's got the evidence. She is demonstrably showing the forms of transformation it can have. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then I mean, in between 1943 and 1946, she then attended Milwaukee State Teachers College, Wisconsin, in the hope of actually becoming a teacher herself. I mean, why does she choose the school and what was her experience like here? Yeah, so Ruth decides she's going to be an art teacher. And so she goes to the teacher college there because it's inexpensive. Her family have no money. And actually, a Quaker was her patron. Wow. So a Quaker offered to be her patron, so got her through that. And also set her up with boarding somewhere so she could be an au pair, earn a bit of money like being a live-in nanny. Now, at Milwaukee, she was really good. And she did loads of different art forms. And there was a few really great things that happened there. She did her degree. She's doing great. It gets to the final bit of her third year of her degree, which is it's teaching. So it's a teacher placement within a school. And the college explained to her that actually because of the level of aggression against people of Japanese heritage, they feel it's in her best interest that she doesn't go into a a classroom. Not that the kids would necessarily have a problem, but that there would not be a supportive environment for a a new teacher to go into and that actually she'd be unlikely then to be able to get jobs either. So actually they withdrew that component from her degree for reasons of her, you know, what we would now call safeguarding. But that meant she couldn't get her degree. She'd studied three years and they couldn't grant the degree because she didn't have this final component. So she's, you know, that is phenomenally frustrating. Quite a few turning points in Ruth's life come from her being frustrated about things, which is that best use of anger ever, where you go, okay, something's wrong. What do I change? What happens there? So she had a couple of really great friends at that teaching college, Ray Johnson and also Elaine Schmidt. Now, they were very uh, excited about Black Mountain College. Ruth hadn't heard of it. They were really wanted to go there. They had friends who had gone. It was a very exciting prospect, this new, exciting place. Also, it was pro-interracial integration in a way that was not to be taken for granted and Elaine in particular was saying to Ruth you need to go study with Annie Albers so Ruth (gasps) was really interested in weaving in these different ideas so she does get in touch and she makes an application and she doesn't it kind of doesn't get through she makes an application then to go to she wants to work with Annie Albers but she can only do the summer course because that's what time-wise and money-wise what she can manage And Annie Alba's response is that you can't learn weaving in six weeks. And actually, everyone starts with Joseph Alba's course in the summer. So if she's only going to do the summer, she needs to do the six-week course with her husband, Joseph, instead. So I love her application forms on things. And I'd be really like her references and her school, like the references and different things. I just love how she's taking the horrific circumstances she has in her life and just constantly sees this positive. I mean, it's just hard to even believe or you know it's so inspiring <laughs> it is really inspiring and it's lovely because it's often with like she worked something out with her sister yes. or the references she's given <laughs> from teachers and, and different people as well is you know shows someone who is exceedingly switched on I mean yeah. she's really bright and that's absolutely so curious about the world and of course after her experiences in internment she wants to make sense of her experiences in the world so in her application in June 1946 again I'm really fascinated with her private writing sometimes to show us a little bit more probably born out of my frustration of not being able to actually meet her but so age 19 on her college application form she says what she wants to gain from her time at the college Ruth's intention is uh, for a greater understanding and knowledge of the needs of the people 
and find some purpose in living. And then she lists her interests as painting and sociology, which I loved. If you're going to have two, they're really good. <laughs> and then this was really telling as well. So when they say, what do you want to do with your experience at the college? She puts, to help on a farm or finish school, question mark. Because that's Ruth's understanding. Yeah. All of us, you know, what you know at that age is different things you've seen or different options you've seen. She gets into the college. She does get admitted. And it is their first intake of students who are what we might call diverse in terms of yeah. an intake, which is a gamble for the college. They're in North Carolina. They're in the South. But it's a very rural community. She goes into Joseph Albers's classes and she gets on extremely well in those classes. So Joseph Albers, absolute extraordinary teacher. He'd kind of really honed his teaching techniques for 10 years at the Bear House. Yeah. What we in arts education now call the foundation course, that was really honed at the Bear House. It was called oh the preliminary gosh. course. And it is still, you know, 100 years later, it's kind of on the best training grounds for visual arts and from there you can springboard into all sorts of visual arts and if you don't do art because Black Matter College is a liberal arts college it has many yeah. different disciplines it's not that everyone's going to be an artist but it has art at the heart of it. I mean you've explained briefly but maybe for people who haven't heard of Black Mountain College yeah. maybe just give us a sort of quick definition if that helps. Yeah so Black Mountain College is a really fascinating essentially an education experiment so it lasted for only 24 years. However, a lot of incredible artists came out of it and taught there. Artists, dancers, architects, musicians. So it was born of the American progressive movement. So what is it? What do you need in democratic life? What sort of education do you need? Well, you need one that's grounded really in philosophical ideas about the individual, where you're educating the whole person where someone's going to get really switched on to what it is to be alive at this moment, right? Because you want them as active citizens of democracy. And so you do that by having lots of different practical forms where you learn about life, about making and doing and, and working with people. So it might be the progressive idea, for example, would be that you have a project you do together at Black Mountain that would manifest in communal gardening. But everyone does it. Yeah, so all these, everything, you learn from everything. Also, it combined ideas from Quakerism too. So these ideas of tolerance, which is one that is, again, it's anti-hierarchy. It's about the individual having a spiritual relationship of their own with nature. Also brought in ideas actually from Oxford Uni as well, in terms of the Oxbridge kind of way of people having quite a close relationship with their tutors that was somewhat like mentoring and, and smaller groups That's of people so working together. And there was also lots of influence of some more Eastern thinking. So the questioning of everything that comes in and looking at pedagogies and ideas of learning that were from further afield as well. So looking at, say, Taoism. So again, the idea of engaging with life as a, as a living being thing. So really quite selective combinations of ideas from different places and different eras but that resonated together. And of course, each tutor had their own agenda. On the advisory board, they had people such as Walter Gropius, founding director of the Bauhaus, Albert Einstein. He was another advisor no on the group. Because this is a combination of arts and sciences. There was no separation between arts, science, maths, dancing. This is all together. 
Wow. So any of the modernists who are very into and know of themselves that intuitive ways of working are important, which Einstein, you know, there's all the stories about moments playing the violin as part of a different form of thinking that helps him work through his own interest in physics and mathematics. These things are a very important moment in really rethinking what education can be. And also there was a lot of women around. So you had some serious female philanthropists involved in setting it up as well. This must have been so perfect for Ruth Asawa. It was <laughs> extraordinary. But it also, you know, we, we're reading Ruth Asawa through her being yes. shaped by this. And yes. this, one of the amazing, wonderful things to learn from Ruth is she is so appreciative, not yes. in a kind of, I'm so lucky because yeah. she hasn't been, these juncture points in her life she identifies them and she honors them yeah so she she tries to recreate them again later on in her life for the children in her neighborhood and so it's honoring the gifts you've been given and I think that's one of the huge things that happened for Ruth in her identity so Black Mountain was a completely incredible place and one of the things that was distinct about it as well was they invited the Albers. The Albers had to leave Germany because Annie Albers was of Jewish heritage. And like other well-educated, middle-class, progressive, intellectual families, you had this major influx of people to the States. And some of the art schools did utterly the right thing in the universities of inviting tutors. These were visas that could save people's lives. Yeah giving people a teaching post, then they could get citizenship and they could remain safe in the country. So I know that people can sometimes feel like there's a there's an us, them, and artists are like this and institutions are like that or all these different dynamics, but actually there's a far more fascinating sets of relationships between those things and interrelationships to create these spaces of freedom. And that's something that Ruth explicitly said and something she really learned at the college. So when giving this speech in 1990, when presenting a public sculpture on the internment that she had experienced and reflecting back on this moment in the 40s, she says, the irony of the war, the internment, and finding a unique college, Black Mountain College, that allowed Jewish refugees from Germany to teach in the United States without American credentials, shaped my life and influenced my work as an artist. Bauhaus artists like Joseph and Annie Albers, architect Walter Gropius, Max Den, an incredible mathematician from Frankfurt, musician, conductor Helmut Jelowski from Cologne. They all came to teach at Black Mountain. They profoundly influenced my outlook on the value of life and the true nature of freedom. So there's lots of teachings at Black Mountain that's looking at freedom and not all the tutors would have really known what it would be, the terror of going into an internment camp. Yeah. They just escaped it, or they had family who didn't. And at that time, it wasn't fully clear what was happening and how bad things were in terms of the genocide side, that the concentration camps had been in tow for quite some time. So they recognised what she had been through. And so it spotted very quickly at Black Mountain that this child is not only... She's 19. Not only is she artistically exceedingly gifted, she also has an unusual emotional maturity for her age. In a more light 
interview much later, or decades later, that she was doing actually in relation to a curator doing some research on Buckminster Fuller. She said, yeah, Black Belt in college was completely incredible. I mean, the tutors were incredible and there were some brilliant students. She's there with her good friends as well. Ray got in, Elaine got in. But some of the other students, quite a lot of them were brats. You know, she said... (laughs) And that's not her being horrible. It's that her experience of life and what they're trying to do at the college, I think what she means, but I know it sounds awful. So but funny. I think if you think about 19-year-olds going to college, right? Yeah. They're told they have to work outdoors to grow the food that they're then going to have to eat. Joseph's English wasn't great, and he was pretty strict. And this was really tough for a lot of the American students who had had a very different life experience up until that point and everyone would have gone there with expectations of what they might get out of it yeah and one of the big things Joseph Albers did was to really try and strip people's egos back not in a personal way but exactly the opposite of just to say to open your eyes to see the world to make art I need you to learn not to have your ego there's no space for personal expression in my classes that comes later First, you must learn these ways of engaging with colour. So he's really training their thinking and their minds and hand-eye. But to do that, he's taking a a very strict approach. And so he gets impatient. And so a lot of the students, of course, reacted not quite seeing the, the deeper areas of what he was trying to get to. But Ruth could park her ego, essentially, and... She was very capable of driving a tractor and working on the farm and that (laughs) just being part of what you did. And she also says that actually through people like Max Stern and and Joseph Albers, their engagement with Eastern thinking, such as Zen Buddhism, the idea that you would meditate on something, by meditate could be draw on it or analyse it. And then she kind of joined the dots a bit later that actually that is also where her parents were coming from in their values. And so she felt that that kind of reconnected her back in, actually, to another community. So I was really delighted in the Stanford archive to find a letter, actually, that after she had been just in the summer school, she went back to the farm because her parents needed support. You know, they lost everything. Yeah. And the director, Teddy Dry, writes a letter saying, we know it might seem unfamiliar to have art as a subject to study and that might be a profession, but Joseph Albers would be her mentor and would really like her to come back to the school. So no. we know you need her on the farm, but please, oh God, could we chills. help her come back to the school? It's incredible. Wow. So she still had to find her fees, but she had bits of money came through. She took a loan that took her incredible amount of time to pay back from a church in Hawaii. She took a loan from secret patrons paying bits and bobs of things. And of course, she would do trades. She was the hairdresser on site sometimes. No way. And uh, yeah, so she would, she always found a way. She found a way to keep what mattered most in terms of what was thriving. And so Annie Albers was also here. I mean, how was she influential to her work? She wasn't particularly taught directly by Annie in the same way. Interestingly, the teaching relationship was very strong between Joseph Albers and Ruth. And they very much kind of co-mentored her. So it was quite a bit the advice that Annie Albers and the other female tutors were really good mentors and a great influence on Ruth as well. Uh, her daughters were mentioning meeting these women in that era. So we're talking late 40s, independent, strong, 
well-educated have found their way to education, who are working professionally as artists in other ways, who had a level of self-determination, who were in relationships that had much more expectations around equality. And so that had a massive impact on Ruth. Another huge influence on Ruth's life at Black Mountain College in terms of tutors was Buckminster Fuller. Yes. Ruth would cut his hair sometimes. And he <laughs> loved the notions of... So he is from an kind of engineering and science background. And at yeah. that time, exploration of space and the ideas around the universe were really huge. And conceptually, to feel that you belong to something that is beyond your community and the trappings and complications of citizenship is beyond internationalism. And in fact, it's beyond the world. And this comes through in all sorts of different interesting ideas. And Ruth, in her love letter, when she's just conceded and agreed to marry Albert Lanier, who she meets at Black Mountain, she really crystallises that when she says that she's decided to set aside and ignore the pain of racism, as we would call it, and the abuses of that, and instead choose the pain of when wire cuts your fingers, and to no longer conceive of herself as Japanese or American, but to choose to be a citizen of the universe. Now, I yeah. chose that as the title of the exhibition, for example, because... That is such an important idea. But in saying that, to my mind, she's really joining this progressive large community of that time. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I mean, just to come back slightly, because I mean, then in the summer of 1947, Ruth actually travelled to Toluca in Mexico with her sister. Am I right in thinking? Where she volunteered as a teacher in the town. I mean, tell us about this trip and sort of how did this trip help her define this artistic language that she was so incredibly going to carve out? So she went on two trips to Mexico. The first was in 1945 with her sister Lois. And the second was in 1947, the one you just mentioned, with her sister Chio. And there had been a notice put up in Black Mountain College. And it was the Quakers wanted students to go and teach children, essentially, because there's a real need for volunteers to go to Mexico and help teaching English and crafts and art and design. And Ruth really felt that having had a patron and a few patrons and support from the Quakers early on, this would be a real opportunity to repay that. So her sister had a bit of income, so managed to get them Greyhound tickets. They went down to Mexico. So when they arrived in Mexico, the Albers suggested that Ruth and Chio, her sister, go to visit the murals of Diego Rivera. And they were really taken with those, just to see as well, these kind of very politicised art, and that the Albers were in a friendship circuit of people who had strong political views about some of the atrocities of capitalism, to put it just very simply. So there was about 20 girls who went from the United States to work on these Quaker teaching projects, and Ruth really enjoyed it. There's some different accounts, essentially, of how much of this influenced her work later with wire one is that Ruth was doing some basket weaving with some of the children in terms of showing them just using palm leaves another account is that she partly kind of as an exchange of teaching techniques some basket weaver sort of showed her a technique where you could use wire to create a bit of a structure that's another account but because there's quite a few accounts 
it's not actually as clear as that to me, that it was one particular moment, but certainly something about the weaving that happened there. And also one account, she just said she was just playing with the wire herself. The idea of looping the wire and that it could become a line of it, could become something structural. That, I think, is probably what sparked in Mexico. Yeah, I mean, they're just so incredible. I mean, what she continues to make. I mean, in 1949, she moves to San Francisco where she would live for the rest of her life. She married the fellow Black Mountain College pupil, Albert Lanier, who was an architect. They had six children in nine years, I'm right in thinking, and she kept working with her maiden name and also integrated her studio with her home. And in this time of her career, she's made, I mean, the wire sculptures are just fantastic. I mean, if you really take a look at it as well, they're kind of sculptures within sculptures as well. I mean, tell us about the 1950s, what was happening here. 1950s is an incredible decade in Ruth's life. So her and Albert decided to move to San Francisco because interracial marriage had only just been legalised. They heard that quality of life was good in San Francisco. You could have spaghetti and wine affordably. So (laughs) it was a great place to go. Lots of exciting things. So she's having exhibitions in New York, making the work in San Francisco, and also has six children and she adopts three of the children as well and that's something I've never looked too closely as to which three because I don't it's not essential to know because to her they're all her children yeah they initially live in a really small place and then they find this wonderful house and Albert and some friends work it up to make it really suitable for the family and in that space Ruth actually can make her sculptures. The kitchen table becomes a place of both cooking and making and everything else. She would always have some sculptures on the go. And there was different stages. So one was the wire had to be straightened out. There was moments where the wire would be coming from things like slot machines and stripping the wire off them. All sorts of ingenious (laughs) techniques. Her eldest daughter was telling us that a good way to have a chat with mum was to uh, help her loop the wire around the, the, oh the, the God, rods to make that. the little lead shapes because then <laughs> she was actually sitting still, you know. And then when she has these moments, she can, from hooks in the ceiling, she can start making these amazing hanging works and she can make them and then return to them. So she did exactly as Albers advised, which was to find a fine art method that you can integrate with your life. She was also continued with her brilliant drawings as well. Yes. And so Addy and Aiko was telling us that when people bought a gift of flowers around, she would always draw them and often would give the oh. drawing of the flowers oh back to gosh, them. That's so amazing. Ruth, with her art practice in terms of her making of the sculptures, so they were getting recognition. You know, she was yeah. having shows at the Peridot Gallery in New York and it was selling. Her work was wow. not inexpensive because it yeah. was large and took a long time the complications were not that she wasn't valued and recognized she was already being collected you know by institutions and collectors yeah the complications were actually logistical yeah and it's still the case and this is why she hasn't had an institutional show in (laughs) Europe yet I have we have learned the hard way which is these are incredibly delicate works they don't look delicate as we were just describing when you encounter them they look so strong but actually they are not they are so gentle and fragile And at that time, an artist would need to pay for all their own kind of crating and transport. But more problematic was art handling, as we know it now, as a profession that's been really honed and perfected, had not 
been established at that point. So oh, works God. would get horrendously damaged. And this was just heartbreaking. And she was making these works, but the difficulty of the art world in New York being far away, the logistical complications of that, the cost for her, when they didn't have that much money, really was a, a very big contributing factor to her being very local in how yeah. she then worked, to the huge benefit of San Francisco. So what went out of the equation was works being transported and also her Guggenheim fellowships that she applied on year after year to enable her to continue making the work never came through. <sighs> but when you start looking through all these incredible applications and yeah. the number of knockbacks. According to Buckminster Fuller, who in one of her references in 1971, wrote that she was one of the greatest artists he had known in terms Amazing. of really known as an artist. So there's a brief note from Buckminster Fuller when he's writing to Ruth saying, you know, I hope this is gets you through to get this grant. Although having been around how the judging panel are in New York, he kind of mentions and he he describes a scene which to my mind just sparked some sort of scene from Mad Men in terms of kind of <laughs> white guys in suits. Very white just and very yeah, really <laughs> oh no. Mad. So and also there's a section on the form that says, Do you have children? And I wish somebody had told her to just write not applicable no. in terms of its relevance oh, for the form. Because she writes these lovely things. Oh, yes. So I have these six children oh. and, and then sometimes she puts their ages and different things. Oh. There's all these social codes of exclusion. Yeah. Oh my what God, the heritage so is. Do you have children? All these factors. I just feel like if you'd not had that application for me, you just looked at the work. And I could not help thinking that in a different time when there was more deliberate consideration to trying to exclude things that might prejudice a panel then she may work she certainly deserved those fellowships in terms of the quality of the work and what she was proposing so but yeah that was that was one of the difficult bits of the research was going through all those applications and seeing the proportion how tiny percentage of women artists got them it's incredible yeah, I mean, this loss was obviously San Francisco's gain because she Massively. is just, she's seen as a sort of saint and an icon out there. From the 1960s up until her death, I mean, she made numerous public commissions and had many public roles on national committees for artists and for the arts in San Francisco. I mean, tell us about her public service role in San Francisco. Ruth's public service in San Francisco was impressive and very much born of what we were talking about earlier in terms of citizenship being a yeah. big, important part of her narrative, her conception of America. And Ruth really felt that artists, as she had learnt herself at Black Mountain, artists' contribution to public service was important. And she felt that actually for the artists themselves, it was unfair for them to not do public service yeah. and contribute as citizens because it is rewarding. So Ruth, in 1968, with uh, another local artist, Sally Woodbridge, her students were in the Alvarado community and at the elementary school there. And arts education was something that their parents and Ruth really felt needed improving. And it wasn't really enough to have it as a something on the side. And the school were impressively open to this. And so the organising meant that they set up the Alvarado Arts Workshops in schools, which started just locally and then really grew wow. across a network of schools and had a large volunteering pool of parents to make it happen. 
85% of their budget went on paying, having many different artists come in to work with the kids in schools because wow. Ruth knows how transformative it can be. Yeah. And it had some really strong moments. So from Ruth's experience at Black Mountain College, she knows that actually there's a wider, bigger picture here. Now, Ruth doesn't say it like this, but I would certainly say it like this as somebody who also really believes in the importance of art and art education as being inextricably combined. Yeah. But Black Mountain, it's about them more being brilliant together rather than this particular hierarchy of subjects that comes in at a particular time. And in the 40s and early 50s, the arts were well respected in America, actually. But then the climate of the Cold War and the space race led to science and maths getting prioritised in the state and elsewhere. So they set up these workshops and the dual goal, as Ruth called it, of enriching the school environment by providing children with primary creative experiences, so stuff they make, put into the world. They learn to cooperate with teachers and administrators, so they understand their place in the school very differently. They're not being done unto. So Ruth invented what gets called baker's clay, which is just simply flour, salt and water mix, but done in the right proportions. It behaves like ceramic clay, but it's super cheap. And then you can put it in the oven and bake it. Now, in the 70s and 80s, this is used loads of places, but actually Ruth invented that at a certain point in order for this to be able to be used by all the children. Yeah. Because it didn't need any expensive resources to do. And in fact, some of her sculptural work, she did huge community projects such as the Hyatt sculpture which is an enormous community project of everybody making their different components of community life out of this clay that then gets cast in bronze and it's a substantial sculpture one of the things that's distinctive about state education in America is you have things exceedingly segregated in different neighborhoods in around 1978 San Francisco decided to try and integrate the schools so that communities would be less segregated. And this took a huge policy intervention. But the making art together was also a way to have conversations together or ask each other questions about the references somebody might be making with their sculptural object that wasn't recognised. So the effect it had was exceedingly positive on the prioritising of art in an incredible way, on huge community-made sculpture and absolutely amazing that that was commissioned. Ruth was often lobbying superintendents of schools or sending brilliant letters to say, we don't need another man making a large modernist block sculpture who's never actually been here. We could actually do with community art made by people who respect and understand the communities. And then in 1982, she then was championing the idea of setting up a school of the arts to really make San Francisco a destination for excellence in art and aspiring artists and brilliant artists who could come and be tutors because they have these fantastic cultural institutions in San Francisco. Everything's there. So set up a school that uses those resources and that could have an incredible, deep, long-term, regenerative effect to the creative life of the city. So the school was set up in 1982. It's still going. Its first intake had 150 young people. They are still going. They're still aspiring to grow it and have it on the site they originally dreamed of. In honouring Ruth Osowen, 2,000 
10. It was named the Ruth Sauer School <gasps> of the Arts. And oh. it's just an amazing testament to someone who truly understands that art is education. Education is art in the most... These things are not separated out as they can be, whether it's in schools or museums or different environments that continue to devalue education overall or motherhood is hugely devalued, even though it's the most essential and vital thing in human life. (laughs) The education is completely devalued and made second right and teaching is seen as a second right activity, whereas actually what makes humans have any capability in the world at all is the fact that we understand how to learn from and educate each other. And so that's some of the great delight in looking at the work of Ruth Sauer, but also her wider achievements in the world and that the valuing of those things that matter the most. What is it to be free? What does freedom mean if you've got it? And how do you enact it in the world? What do you do with it? Emma, this has just been the most educational, insightful, just incredible discussion. And I think every single person who's going to listen to this is going to take your words and Ruth Asawa's outlook on the world and her perspective. And I think it will change every single person who listens to it. I really hope it does. I think it's changed me today. And I just really can't thank you enough for braving the logistical nightmares, but doing it for the purpose of bringing this person who clearly in the future will be so globally recognized, not just in San Francisco, not just in America, but in Europe, in London, everywhere. And I just can't thank you enough. So thank you so much. But as does the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if there is anything you might have said or asked Ruth Osawa, what would it be? Well, one thing I want to just say is thanks so much, Katie, for inviting me on and also for doing this podcast because (laughs) it is these things that make a difference. It's important for people to recognise all the things they're doing already that is this action in the world and, you know, deliberately programming artists who are women. It's important to make these changes and to build a community and a narrative to understand what we can control in our world and how we can use the platforms we've got and I just think when people are reflecting on stuff it can be really easy to discount what one's already doing that's pretty mega so just to mention that I'm only allowed to do this because of what you do so thank you Emma what would I ask with the sour one thing is I just obviously I'd say thank you so (laughs) much and also It is really complicated trying to do this exhibition that we had the idea for in 2017, (laughs) titled it Citizen in the Universe, came up with the narrative in 2018 to open in 2020. Then all this happened. So Vivekay and I used Ruth's wonderful little phrases to keep going. The one that you mentioned early on, you know, keep at it and you can get a lot done. Um, (laughs) So she's got all these wonderful phrases. Her daughter said that when they were kids and they would be trying to figure out how to make something, they would always come like you do. You know, you go and ask, how do I do this? Or what would happen if I do that? And she would just say, just try it. And that's what she'd always say. And so I find that a really useful phrase when one gets a little bit stuck. And also in this love letter that I have looked at so closely, that has this question in the universe in in it, she kind of has this question 
that she asks Albert. So I'd remind Ruth, if I did have a chance to talk to her, that she had this question in this letter to Albert before their marriage. So December 1948, and she's talking about amazing, you know, Albert has been and but Mr. Fuller, who's just agreed to design their wedding ring and like amazing stuff. <laughs> That's so cool. And they're so enamoured with the whole thing. Yeah. And of course, she's been transformed by falling in love, of course. And she says, um, you know, but will we always be following like Buck Monster for you? Will we always follow him? Will we be able to play another tune, you know, or will we always be just his children? So she has this question of these are amazing people, but will we ever be amazing like that would we ever get to be that and I suppose I'd go back to that question and I would just give her a glimpse of the influence <laughs> she's having yeah and in entirely her Ruth Sauer way what she's opened up in her lifetime for people and now the huge amount that's still happening because of her choices and way of doing things my question would just be how she would now reflect on that question still Fuller's children or playing her own tune and I would also just give her a glimpse of quite how much she's done in terms of influence. I think she would be astounded but it's also just unsurprising on the legacy that she's left on the world. Emma thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the 63rd episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Emma Ridgway on the staggeringly influential and brilliant Ruth Asawa. I am just in awe at everything Ruth Asawa stands for. She is just incredible and I urge you all to look up her works. As always, I have linked through to everything in the show notes. Ruth Asawa, Citizens of the Universe, opens on the 28th of May to the 21st of August 2022 at Modena, Oxford, and then the 1st of October 2022 until the 22nd of January 2023 at the Stavanger Art Museum. The exhibition is curated by Emma Ridgway and Vibesse Selther, organised in partnership with Modern Art Oxford UK and Stavanger Art Museum in Norway, supported by the Terra Foundation for American Art. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Winnie Simon, and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel, and I'll see you next week for the season finale with the brilliant author, Ali Smith.